There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Our guest today is Linda Gratton. Linda is one of the foremost global thought leaders on the future of work, named by Business Thinkers 50 as one of the top 15 business thinkers and described as a rock star teacher at London Business School, where she's a professor of management practice. She's the author of 10 books on business, including her most recent, Redesigning Work, How to Transform Your Organization and Make Hybrid Work for Everyone, which was released by MIT Press in May. In her book, she looks at how COVID has given us a chance to radically and permanently redesign the way we work and what it will take to make employers comfortable with work from home arrangements and flexible schedules. Rockstar Linda Gratton, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Oh, thank you, Chris. Thank you very much indeed. You know, that's not something you typically hear being associated with a, a business school professor. So, so hats <laughs> off to you for that title. That, that's quite a feat in itself. Well, I'm not quite as old as the Rolling Stones, but almost, <laughs> almost as old as maybe that's it. <laughs> so Linda's joining us from, from London today. And whether you're in London, New York, Beijing, or anywhere in between, the COVID-19 pandemic turned the world, and especially the business world, upside down and inside out. You've been writing about the business world for a long time, saw the pandemic as a watershed moment to re-examine the way we work, and wrote your most recent book on the topic. Do you think employers would be offering hybrid and virtual workplaces had not been for the COVID pandemic? Well, Chris, there's no doubt that the COVID pandemic changed everything. And it's changed everything right across the world. In fact, um, I, I, I had the cover article for Hollywood Business Review in May of 2020. And the open, opening example wasn't New York or London. It was actually Tokyo. And the reason I chose Tokyo is that that's, Japan is a company, country that has be, found it almost impossible to change the way they work. You know, you have to get up early in the morning, four o'clock in the morning. You remember that, Chris. Uh, you have to work all day and get home late at night. And, and you see, the thing, Chris, is that I'd, I've been studying the future of work now for years. And I look at the big trends that change the way we think about work very much in view of your you know, next steps forward. And I've always I've looked at three things. One is. Uh, you know, ourselves, particularly in terms of demography. And I wrote a book, uh, The Hundred Year Life, which really looked at what happens when you start, if you think you're going to live to 100. The whole, the second is technology, you know, just how technology is reframing the way that we work, the use of our use of robots, artificial intelligence, and, and, and sociological changes, like, for example, women working. So many families now having two people uh, who are working rather than one. So I've been saying for years in the in the books that I've been re writing, work has got to change. But even though my books have sold over a million copies, I can't honestly tell you that work had changed, Chris. So suddenly work changed. And that's why what we've seen during COVID and since COVID is an enormous experiment. And as you quite rightly say, Chris, one of the experiments that we realized is that when we closed down offices, and started to work from home, a couple of things happened. First of all, our technology held up. Who would have thought that? Honestly, who would have thought that the technology held up? But it did. And secondly, we sort of rather liked it. And so we began to say to ourselves, well, you know, I've been traveling into New York every day for the last 20 years, getting up at four in the morning, coming home at seven at night. This is you, Chris. <laughs> Why am I doing it? And Chris, you weren't the only person in the world to be thinking that. There were millions of others who thought the same. So what I'm watching now with great interest is how this is playing out. It's a bit like series two, episode three of what's going to happen to work. And honestly, Chris, there's more episodes and I think there might even be another series. Well, you mentioned technology there a couple of times and you know, just talking about Zoom, how would we have survived without Zoom? Like that was just a, a godsend, right? Just Yeah, you know, and, and I think that's right. And Zoom, Microsoft's, you know, all of these marvelous platforms. And, you know, Chris, it wasn't just that the technology, it was the cost. Um, I, I, I've been working with, 
um, co companies in Asia now for years. And I remember a couple of years ago working for Fujitsu and they put up a great big video screen in London for me to talk to the people in Tokyo. And I said, this is amazing. And I said, you know, it's great because you know, I don't have to get on a plane and it does, it's not going to cost £4,000 to get to Tokyo. And they said, actually, Linda, it's cost more than that. It's actually cost more than £4,000. And, and that was the thing that I don't think even 10 years ago, if this had happened, we would have had the technology. We had the technology, but we didn't have it at this price point. And also we didn't have stable internet you know i don't know about you but the first few weeks i had these terrible moments where my internet went down i think this i think all our listeners are going to go oh yeah i remember that moment well now i don't know about you i'm a belt and braces sort of girl so i've actually got two internets coming in to my house at the moment i was doing something in china yes for china yesterday and they said to me you know linda the internet's a bit is is not really strong and i said I can tell you that's not my end, that's your end. Uh, so yeah, the technology has been amazing and we've learned so much, haven't we, about technology. And that's one of the things that's really happened uh, during the pandemic is we learned new skills, you know, new digital skills. We changed our habits, like we stopped getting up at seven o'clock in the morning. And we actually had a chance just to ask ourselves, what on earth are we doing? Now, of course, you live in America, Chris, and you don't take any holidays in America. We're very <laughs> fortunate in Europe that we take August off. So we're all about, the whole of Europe is about to head to the beach. But I, I know that you haven't got quite that same view about, about life. <laughs> well, I'm laughing. You're talking about the internet connectivity in the beginning of the pandemic. And at the time, I had two teenage daughters in high school, and my youngest, my son, had just turned eight. So he was in second grade at the time. And I remember those internet crashes and I've since put the second line in from my business yes. computer. Yeah. Uh, but I remember my wife coming into the dining room and my son's at one side of my iPod, iPad with AirPods. I'm on the other side of my laptop with AirPods and she took a picture. I'm like, this is the new world order. And yeah. I'm just curious to see what these you know, future business leaders, how they think and envision the, the business world having gone yeah. through you know, now our third year of this pandemic. So yeah, next I, chapter. I, I, yeah, I'm so with you on that, Chris. And I, I, what, what's been really fascinating me is, you know, how do you start making connectivity in a world that's te technological? So one of the questions that I've been asking is, I'm a psychologist, by the way. So, you know, I'm really interested in human behavior. So one of the questions is, can you make friends over Zoom? And, and actually, guess what? You know, I, I've written a, a, another Harvard Business Review article that came out earlier this year with Diana Gerson, who is a friend who lives in California. She just stepped down as, as, as the head of HR for IBM out in, in, in the US. And we wrote a whole, you know, article together. We talked to each other. We said we were friends. We never actually met until Diana showed up at my house in France uh, a month ago and suddenly we're going oh my god we became friends so and of course the other interesting thing that's happening Chris is this whole business of virtual reality so if you had uh, you know if you're a young graduate getting into PwC or Accenture or any of the big um, uh, you know consulting firms this year you would have used virtual reality goggles as the way of meeting people interacting with people and so on in fact they their view is is that the interactions using virtual reality were stronger than face-to-face. -face. Now, we don't really have the data on that yet, honestly, Chris, for me to be clear, completely clear about that. But certainly, there was we moved a long way very quickly with regard to technology, didn't we? We did. And like we said before the show, this will be a good uh, Harvard, Harvard Business School, London School of Economics case study yes. uh, 10 years from now. Indeed. So well, that's why, I wrote, that's why I wrote the book, Redesigning Work. I mean, I don't usually write a book in a year. In fact, you know, I've got too many things, exciting things happening to sit in a study for a year. But I did. And the reason I wrote it is that it's just the biggest experiment I'd ever seen. And I wanted to have a look at it, write about it. I have uh, I have a consulting practice as well as being a professor. And, you know, we were advising companies all over the world. And I wanted to talk about what we'd found. So, yeah, it was we, we really tried as hard as possible to get the good practices out. So people, you know, when they read uh, the book, um, Redesigning Work, they get a chance to, to really think about what, what should I be doing? Well, the good news is, I mean, you were writing that real time. And so you were seeing what was and was not working as it happened. Yeah. 
I did. And in fact, I kept a diary. And I'm, 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 I'm still, where am I now? I think I'm on volume. Gosh, I don't even know what volume I'm on. It's been so long now. This, they're all sitting behind me. If you're looking at me on a video, you can see. Oh, I see them. They're all, they, these are all the volumes of There's the diary. There's at least a dozen I can see. Yeah, they're, they're at least a dozen. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I kept a diary. And in fact, I still do. I've got it. If I'm, you're in my diary today. There you are, Chris. Oh boy. Oh boy. In the next book. In the next oh book. boy. Oh boy. Yeah. So the pandemic began as ripples in the economy rather than the massive tsunami that eventually engulfed the global economy. Should businesses have been better prepared for those ripples or could they have done anything to be better prepared? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I wrote, I've, as I've said, Chris, I've been writing about the future of work now for about 15 years. I teach an, an executive program at London Business School and I teach an MBA class on the future of work. In fact, I was one of the first professors in the world, in fact, to start teaching uh, a program on the future of work. Um, so I went back to one of my sort of seminal works on the future of work. It was called The Shift. I wrote it about five years ago. And I went to the back and looked under P for pandemic. And I found lots of other Ps, but no pandemic at all. I hadn't even said a single thing about it. Now, one of my sons is a medical doctor. And he said, you know, mum, we always knew this was going to happen. And I think if you're a medical doctor, you probably did. But honestly, people didn't know it was going to happen. Uh, I thought they were... I thought the speed with which companies responded was absolutely astonishing. You know, it hats off to all those companies who got people work, you know, like the telecom companies, you know, British Telecom got their people working from home, 60,000 of them within a day. I mean, it was an astonishing. And actually, I, in the book, I talk, talk about to one of the people who ran British Telecom. And she said to me, you know, we kept asking ourselves, if we can do this so quickly, what else can we do so quickly? So they weren't prepared, but they were very fast. Um, that's what I would say, that, that they were very fast in their reaction. And I think it just shows just how quickly companies can turn if, if, if the threat is as great as it was. And of course, remember back to those early days of 2020, um, the threat was, you know, palpable. We were very, very anxious about dying. And so, yeah, we wanted to stay in our homes. So let's hope that doesn't happen again. But yeah, I didn't think they were prepared, but I did think they were fast. Well, and to that point, I remember that weekend prior, uh, I'm an adjunct professor and teach a weekend course and was away and came home that, uh, I guess it was Saturday afternoon. I remember my wife being me, you know, like you were just on an airplane, go upstairs, take a shower, do the laundry, all this. And I'm like, you're crazy. Yeah. And I went to work that Monday and there was about 10% of my office was in. Yeah. And I looked well, at a I colleague of mine that. and we looked at each other like something's not right here. And literally yeah. I remember closing up my laptop at noon and yeah. didn't go back for a year and a half. Yeah. You know, I, I was just the same. In fact, my husband and I had just got off a plane from Singapore. We'd, we'd been over to to, Bar to um, Myanmar on holiday and then we'd stopped off in Singapore to see friends and the same thing. We got back and I'd said to, to my company, my group, oh, let's stay in the office. And they said, no, no, this was the same Monday. They said, no, Linda, we think something bad's happening. I said, oh, don't be ridiculous. You know, let's just carry on. And so they, they kept the office open for one day. And then next day they phoned me and said, Linda, we have to close the office. And I said, you, you're right. So I agree. And it was, it was just astonishing. And, and well, I teach London business school. I mean, we, we completely within a week did went to entirely virtual. We, we taught our two year MBA program entirely virtually, which was, you know, we learned a lot actually, to be honest, but at the same time, it wasn't a fantastic experience for any student during that period, because the whole thing about going to college is, you know, meeting people. We have these amazing trips at London Business School where we take students around the world, you know, to meet alumni. We have, you know, at least 45 nationalities in, in my classes. Uh, and so all of that stopped. So they had a pretty miserable experience as your children did at school you know I mean nobody says that being at home being taught is a great thing I think I think we all felt oh it's just not right and just a side question given your uh having put your academic hat for a minute if that's okay yeah you know seeing a full graduate program at master business administration school go online for two years yeah what, do, what are your thoughts in terms of what the academic world looks like going forward 
Well, we learned a lot, actually, Chris, and you probably felt the same about your teaching. Um, we learned about hybrid. And, and so we went from completely virtual to hybrid. And, and, and by hybrid, we meant we had Zoomers and rumors. We had some people in the room and some people on Zoom. And actually, we've 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 carried on with that, although we're now this term saying we want everybody back in the room. Um, and the reason we've done that is to say there's something very special about being taught together uh, and we don't want to lose that. But we did also learn a lot about virtual work. So, you know, one of the things that I did at the very beginning was to start doing um, pretty much every every month. I did a webinar about what I was thinking, what was happening. And, and by the time that finished, I had thousands of people coming onto the webinar um, just to hear you know, what I was thinking about at that period. So we did really learn that we could have incredible global reach. You know, as I was mentioning, I yesterday I did uh, something very early in the morning in, for, for a group in China. I don't think I would have done that before because I don't think, and they were all in the room and I was coming in on, on, a, on a platform, you know. So I, I think, you know, a couple of years ago, they'd have said, Linda, can you, can you fly here? But here they said, okay, that's fine. We'll have you on a big screen. It'll be just fine. And so I think we've just become more agile, really, Chris, about how we do stuff, how we run our lives, how we teach, how we work. As you mentioned earlier in the show, I'm one of those fortunate people now who is not taking a long commute into New York City, which gives yeah. me three and a half hours a day of my life back, which has been a game changer for me. Yeah. And I, I obviously see the value of those virtual or hybrid models. Are there health and or emotional benefits to workers whose employers have gone to a hybrid or virtual work model? Well, well, look, let me just say a couple of things about hybrid, Chris, before we jump in. First thing to say is the uh, hybrid has been primarily seen as, as, as a flexibility around place. You know, do I work in the office? Do I work from home? But hybrid is also flexibility about time. You know, could I flex the time that I work? Now, for lots of people, you know, I mentioned earlier, one of my sons is, is a doctor. He spent the whole of COVID on, accident, on an accident in the emergency ward. I mean, he couldn't say, I'm going to do this from, from home. He, he had to be there. And that's true for 50% of people. So we have to realize that when we talk about hybrid, only 50% of people have any flexibility about where they work. You know, you're one of them and I am as well. So, but let's, leaving that aside. So in terms of people who have flexibility, um, what we've known for a long time is the sort of life that you had, Chris, which is getting up at four in the morning, getting into New York, um, coming back at seven o'clock at night, we knew that was wrong. We, we've known that. You knew it. I knew it. I'd written about it. You probably, you know, felt uncomfortable. And why? Well, because you weren't getting enough sleep. Um, you weren't seeing your kids enough. You were probably bad-tempered at the weekend. I'm sure you weren't, Chris. But you know what I mean? It, it wasn't the right thing for you. And we'd always known that. But somehow or another, we couldn't stop it from happening. So, so what we're noticing is that, and it's about flexibility, Chris, it's not really about saying you've got to work from home, you've got to work in the office. It's actually saying humans like some sort of autonomy. They like to have a choice about what they do. So, you know, lots of people are now saying, actually, you know, I like being in the office occasionally or once a week or twice a week because, I, you know, I've got friends, I can meet people, I can drink coffee, I can, you know, whatever I want to do. But people want a choice. And I think what happened with office work is it, we start, you know, it became like a factory, you know, that, that somehow the machine was determining our life and the machine doesn't have to determine our life. So, yeah, there's lots of health and mental, positive mental health um, benefits if you keep give people autonomy. And that's not just autonomy about place, Chris. It's also autonomy about time, you know. Do you really have to, did you really have to work from eight till six? Could you have, you know, worked fewer hours? Could you have had Fridays off? Could you have had, um, you know, where you work very long, a few long, long days and then take a day off? So I think we all, we just need to rid ourselves of the straitjacket that we've built about how work gets done. And to that point, you know, I've said throughout the pandemic that I've been very blessed for the, the firm I work for. Uh, our CEO's name is Doug. And yeah. what he did during this is, is two things. One is one Friday a month, 
it'll have meeting-free Fridays. So you have no internal yeah. meetings. Have yeah. client meetings, that's fine, but nothing internally. And then what he'll do on the long weekends, whether it's Memorial Day or Labor Day or the 4th of July, he'll call the Doug Day. So it'll either be a Friday or a Monday around a long weekend. And unless your business is essential, you've got the day off. Yeah. And you know, that's not costing Doug a lot. It may We're be- still working. Yeah, you know, you're still working. Uh, it may be even that productivity increases. I mean, it's interesting. We've got uh, a whole bunch of experiments running in Europe at the moment to do with the four-day working week. So a whole bunch of companies have said, we'd like to trial it. We've got pretty good productivity measures in place. So let's see. Let's answer the question. If you work fewer hours, do you become more productive or less productive? We don't really know the answer to that yet, but these are the sort of experiments that we need to run to find out. You know, it may be that actually if you work four days a week rather than five, you're more productive because you don't muck around so much as you do if it's five days. You know, you don't have long lung breaks, you don't do your shopping online and all the other things that we do at work. I mean, you, Chris, you and I don't. but I'm We don't, exactly. Every, it's everybody else. Like everybody else, yeah. <laughs> yeah, online shopping. Was one result of the pandemic the workers are now more willing to speak up about what they want and what they expect from employers? Well, yes, but, you know, we're now moving into a recession, so they're not speaking up so much. So, you know, from the very beginning, when people said to me, well, isn't it interesting that that now there's, a, you know, a labor shortage, employees' voices being heard? And I said, yeah, but wait until you get the next inflation or the next recession, and they won't be heard again. So I wouldn't really overestimate that. Um, Chris, I think it's great for employees' voices to be heard, and I wish they were heard more. But in general, during a recession, everything that all these nice things get pulled out. And, and part of the reason I wrote um, Reimagining Work, Redesigning Work, is I wanted to show that actually this made you more productive, not less. So, you know, don't pull it out when you're when you're in a recession. Actually, in a recession, hybrid work might just be the thing that's going to help you navigate through these these tricky times. Are there any reasons why businesses shouldn't return to the old ways of working? You know, those ways worked for us pretty well for decades. You talked about the factory where we punch in, you, you punch out. And don't they still work well for many companies? Well, do, do they really, Chris? Do they ever really work well? You know, that's the question, isn't it? I mean, actually, psychologists for years had been saying big mental health issues. Um, you know, people are, are, aren't eating properly. There's a lot of obesity. Um, you know, families are splitting up because both parents are working so hard. I don't really think they were working so well. And so I would be really sad if we went back. I think any CEO who just presses the button and says, let's go back to where we were, is, is being very naive about what's, what's happened in those two years. You know, we're not jumping back into the same stream as that philosopher said. This is not the same stream. It's not that we've just gone out and we can dive back in. We can't. The, the water's moved on. It's, it's, a new, it's a new body of water. Uh, and you've got, to be, um, you've got to be aware of how people's views have changed. So that the old uh, nine to five Monday through Friday is out the window. Well, no, it's not. I mean, I think there'll be lots of companies who still want nine to five. And it may be that that's the best way to run your company. But it, to just, just, just to go back to it without thinking about what the alternatives are is a big mistake. Well, it's interesting. I never thought you mentioned a few minutes ago about how it's you know, only 50% of us have that flexibility. Yeah. And you mentioned you know, your son and doctors, so first yeah. responders, mental health, people yeah. at the airport, people who are bus drivers, train drivers, they've got to go to work. They do. And actually, we're going to have a, one of the things I talk about in the book is fairness and unfairness. And unless you realize that they also need to have hybrid work, which is more about time, then you're going to get, you know, um, people who who are like us, who are now lounging about at home in our pajamas and other people who are sitting in a factory. And they're going to look at you, Chris, and say, how did that happen? What advice do you have for employers who are reluctant to move to a hybrid model? Well, I'd say give it a go. I really would. Give it a go. In addition to looking at where we work, should we also be devoting more attention to when we work? Well, that's the thing, Chris. I mean, that's exactly it. That's the point, really, isn't it? That for all those people out there who have no flexibility about where they work, we've got to bring more flexibility about when they work. You've said that companies have to create their own signature in terms of ways of working. Are there a handful of categories that those signatures fall under? And if so, what are they? Or is each company like a snowflake and no two are the same? 
Oh, yeah. I think I use the snowflake analogy in the book, actually. Yeah, well, you know, at the very beginning, a journalist said to me, Linda, what are the, you know, what's best practice? And I said, you know, Kevin, I don't think there is best practice because every company's got to find its own way. So what might work well for Goldman Sachs, bringing everybody back? might not work very well for a creative company. So what I do in the book, Redesigning Work, is I show you how you get to that final decision about, you know, how do I make things work? And basically, Chris, it's a process. So it's a design process. And and what I'm arguing for in the book is let's now redesign work, which is to say, take a look at what work actually has has to be done think imaginatively about where and how it could be done and then get employees involved in designing their jobs. We've known for years that people love getting involved in designing their job. This is the moment to really give them a chance to do that. And what do workers gain from that diversity of of working signatures? Well, they get a chance to join the company they want to join. So if Goldman says, if Goldman Sachs says you've got to be in the office every day, Um, and another investment company says, actually, you can work anywhere you want, then the employer has, the employee has a choice. Uh, And I love that. I I don't think it's wrong at all that Goldman Sachs says everybody's got to be back in the office. That's their choice. That's that's the decision they've made. But it's nice as a potential employee to say, that's not what I want. And there's other places, there's other investment companies where and I talk about them in the book, where you can you can work anywhere you want for three months a year, and then the choice is yours. So those that are making you go back to work, I'll use air quotes around make you go back. How do those employers create a work environment in this new world of employment that inspires creativity and productivity? Well, I think that um, that's going to be a real challenge because I think, you know, if you're in a company where all your pals in other companies are working from home two or three days a week and you're not, you're going to be asking yourself, well, why why is that? And actually, I was talking to one of the founders of Airbnb, and he said they had, when they said, you know, you can work anywhere you want, they had one million people, Chris. They had one million hits to their recruitment site. One million people around the U.S., looked at their current company and said, nope, I'm going to look at alternatives. You have to realize if you pull everybody back and your competitors aren't, they're going to be looking at your competitors and saying, why aren't we doing this? We've been talking to Linda Gratton, London Business School Professor of Management Practice, whose latest book is Redesigning Work, How to Transform Your Organization and Make Hybrid Work for Everyone. We'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. If you're struggling to understand your self-worth or deal with mental health challenges, you will want to tune into Your Life Matters Today with Dr. Cliff Robertson. Dr. Cliff and his guests will help you understand and work toward what you need to build your best life. Your Life Matters Today. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346- 
1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. And my guest today is Linda Gratton, London Business School Professor of Management Practice, whose latest book is Redesigning Work, How to Transform Your Organization and Make Hybrid Work for Everyone. Linda, before the break, we were talking about creative and productive workplaces. Mm-hmm. Are employees really at peak productivity when they're working in their pajamas or dressed from the waist up? Doesn't that really create a disconnect from their work? Well, you know, it de- depends what your work is, Chris. And one thing I know as a psychologist who studies work is that most of us perform during in our work about 30 different tasks. So if I look at my the tasks I perform, um, I write books. Uh, so I write. I teach a class at London Business School. I have my own consulting practice. So I, I'm, a, I'm a CEO there. So I run meetings. Some of those I can certainly do actually I'm not a pajama top sort of person but I certainly could do at home so writing books I always do from home I, I don't go into an office I have an office at London Business School and I have an office in my own consulting practice in Covent Garden but I don't I don't work from there I actually work from my study because I really like to be um I don't want to be disturbed but there's other things I do like teaching a class or meeting my colleagues or doing research seminars or research workshops where I absolutely need to be around other people so the advice that I'm giving the CEOs that I'm talking to at the moment is first of all work out what the job is and then work out how is it best done and There are jobs where you can do them perfectly well from home. Let me give you an example. A salesperson, a telephone salesperson, you can do that from home. In fact, all of the early work on research that looked at home working really looked at telephone operators because that that had been moved to homes long before the pandemic. Now, the truth is that that's sort of a lonely job. And so companies that use those home-based operators inevitably bring them back, you know, once a month to meet each other. So there are jobs that can be entirely home-based and there's other jobs that have to be entirely office-based. So knowing what the job is and the tasks, that's the first question. So the first thing that I say in the book is, Don't start by asking people what they want, because honestly, none of us really know what we want until we've got it. Start by looking at the job itself. And in my case, I tend to work personally, and I've always had a lot of choice about my job. That's why I built the life that I have, because I love having choice. I've always spent a couple of days at home every week because I write and I don't want to be in my office and have people disturbing me all the time. Uh, writing is a focused activity. You know, I write in five-hour slugs. Um, I like to. I don't want other people to interrupt me. So for me, working from home a couple of days a week has always been great. But I'd hate to be home all the time. I mean, I love going into the office and you know doing big cooperative ch- tasks. You know, like. We're doing a new research project at the moment, and we spent half a day together as a research team just working through what we wanted to do. And I said to the whole team, we cannot do this on a Zoom. We've got to be face to face. So they all came into the office and we had a brilliant face to face meeting. And then we, of course, went out and had something to eat and all those other lovely things that you do. So I think what we have to do, Chris, is really start with the job itself and then also realize that there are life stage differences so if you're you know brand new to a job you don't honestly want to sit at home and and we've noticed this that when people young people join a company they don't want to sit at home because being in a company when you're young if you remember those wonderful days Chris you know it's all about making friends going out drinking coffee looking at what everybody's doing you can't really do that from your home so quite a lot of companies are realizing that young people in particular want to be in the office. And and so the question then is, how do you make the office very enticing? And you'll see right across New York and London, office space being redesigned. In fact, two two of the the 
companies that I advise are architectural practices where we're advising them on what should an office look like. You know, what would entice you back to get up at four o'clock in the morning, Chris, uh, and go to an office? I spoke to somebody, you know, a few weeks ago in, in New York who works for one of the investment banks. And she said, Linda, you know, I got up at four o'clock this morning, as, as you used to do, Chris. I've come into the office. I've put my noise cancelling you know, uh, things on. I've opened my computer and all I've done all day is emails and Zoom. She said, why am I here? And that's the question, isn't it? If you come to an office and you pull people into the office, there's got to be a really good reason for them to be there. And if it's only that you want to count whether they're there, then that's, that's not going to work in terms of productivity because honestly, all of us know how to look productive and not be productive. We can all do that. So you have to trust people to be productive even when they're at home. And that means looking at outputs rather than just simply the, the minutes that they work. Now, you, you mentioned a few minutes ago about working from home a few days a week and then going to the office. You know, so I used to work at Goldman Sachs and was there for 16 years, worked for another big bank after that. And when I joined my current firm, I remember the first day my new boss took me out to lunch. He goes, Chris, you know, we're business casual here. You don't have to wear a suit every day to work unless you're seeing a client. And I remember saying, well, suits are all I own, so that's not going to change. <laughs> and, and he said, we encourage, you know, a, a flexible, you know, work from home model. And so mm-hmm. if you want to work home a day or two weeks, there's going to be a lot of travel. So go ahead and do that. I remember saying, Bo, I've got three kids at home. At home. There's no way in hell I'm working from home so I can come here and get stuff done. <laughs> You know, fast forward today, it's all I've done yeah. for, for three years. So it's just kind of funny how things go full circle. Yeah. And you changed your attitudes as well, didn't you? Absolutely. And, and we noticed that, that people, you know, once they spent a bit of time at home, they they sort of enjoyed it. You know, they liked hanging out with their kids a bit. And so, you know, I think you've got to have to really pull people back to the office. And it's interesting, as you probably saw, Chris, that companies like Goldman have had to pay more because people say, okay, if you want me back in the office, you, you're going to have to pay me more. Now, as a recession bites, I just saw even the, the New York Times only yesterday, people saying, well, actually, you know, now we're just saying to people, you've got to do as we tell you to do, because you might not have a job in the future. So, I mean, the power has shifted a bit. The power was very much with employees, uh, because there was a talent shortage, but that's beginning to shift a bit. So, I think, as I said, it's we've still got quite a few more episodes to do to go, Chris, and maybe another series. I know you're focused on the importance of fairness. The famous American basketball coach John Wooden said, "Fairness is giving all people the treatment they earn and deserve. It doesn't mean treating everyone alike." Yeah. Wooden's players who perform well were treated differently than those who didn't. Should employers treat their top performers differently than their average underperforming employees? And from oh, your yeah. perspective, is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, for me, it's about the big, the big change that I've seen in fairness uh, during my lifetime, Chris, has been, you know, when I started working for a company years back, before I, just as soon as I'd finished my doctorate, I went straight into a company and started working there. And it was definitely a parent-child sort of relationship. You know, the company was the parent, I was the, I, I was the child, the company knew best, it you know it knew how to treat me, and I was I just followed it really as diligently as I could. I think these days it's much more adult to adult, and by that I mean the company. And so what adults do that's different from parents to children and child is that adults talk about accountabilities and commitments. You know that this is your accountability. These are the commitments that I want you to make. And I think that it's it's wise to do that. I mean, if in my own consulting, pre- I, I'm in the very lucky position of not just telling everybody what they're supposed to do, but actually trying to do it myself. So I've got a lot of sympathy, for example, with hybrid work, because I can see how hard it is when you've got people floating in and out of the office all the time. But but I think accountability and commitments are really important. And certainly in my, you know, if I have an, if we have underperforming people, as almost every company has, then, you know, it is about making people accountable, asking them to make commitments and then talking about consequences. So I, I don't think everyone should be treated the same. And, and certainly for your the highest performing people and in some companies, your highest performing people are really what makes the biggest difference to your company. You want to keep them and knowing how to keep them is, 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 the, is the art form, really. I remember we have... Um, 
the, the, the one of the senior people from Shell Oil teaches on, on one of my programs. And he said, you know, the most valuable person in Shell is the geologists because they're the ones who find this stuff. And he said, you know, because we, they also do have oil traders, it's easy to think, oh, it's all about money. You know, how do you keep an oil trader? You pay them more. Well, you know this yourself, Chris. How do you keep a geologist? Well, actually, geologists are very connected to their profession. And, you know, they want to be part of this profession. They want, for example, to have university positions as well. They want to have PhD. They want to have doctoral students. They want to have an opportunity to write about what they've found. That's what switches them on. Another million is not going to do anything to them. But for a trader, that's just exactly what they need. So I think, first of all, realizing who are, who are your most valuable assets and then working out what is it that really switches them on. That's really important because so, you know, I'm a professor at the London Business School. I don't get a high salary. To be honest, it's not a low salary, but I don't get a high, particularly high salary. But that's fine because, you know, nobody who nobody joins a university to get the highest salary. It, it, if they wanted a high salary, they would have gone into consulting or investment banking. So they chose not to. And I think realizing that people are different, they have different motivations, they have different feelings about different stages of their life. You know, I feel as a 67 year old, I feel very different now than I did when I was, you know, bringing up my kids in my early 30s. I, I've, I've been reflecting on that a lot recently, you know, and th you know, then it was all about making money to, to support my kids. But now it's a, my, my life is entirely different. So I think, you know, we have to be sensitive to what it is somebody wants. And because we can't work out what everybody wants, what we have to do is to give them and options so they can choose themselves. And I think that's sort of where I'm coming, the long struggle that I've had about how do you redesign work? That's the sort of final point of it really, which is to say, you don't know what somebody wants. In fact, often they don't know themselves, but if you give them a choice, then they can decide whether they like it or not. So people, for example, have said, well, why don't you work from home five days a week? Lots of people have said, I actually, now I've tried it, I don't like it. It doesn't suit me. I'm lonely. I, you know, the house has got kids around. I don't have a place to work. And, and they're learning about what they want from the choices they make. Now, that doesn't make it easy as a manager, for example, for, by the way. I mean, it's much easier to have everybody in the office. And that's sort of why we had them all there all the time, because they're easier to manage. But you can't build a whole business just because it's easy for, it's easy for a manager. You have to make your managers more sophisticated. So let's turn the clock back three, four, five months and forget about the potential pending recession. What sparked the war for worker talent that we've seen since the pandemic started? Is it truly the result of the great resignation where people have completely quit the workforce in droves? Is there fewer qualified employees? Or are well, people really just staying home for waiting for better offers and higher pay? Do you know, honestly, that's a great question, Chris. And um, and I've been following all the all the data on that because th there's a lot of economic data, particularly coming out of the US. We still honestly don't know. We, you know, to, of course, everybody can have a point of view. I mean, if we were sitting at a dinner party, you and I would be saying, oh, well, I think it's this. But speaking, you know, honestly about this, the, the question is, the, the point is, we don't know what, what we, it, we didn't predict it. And anyone who tells you they did predict it. They, they didn't, because as I told you, I kept a diary. So I know what people said. Nobody said, oh, by the way, as we move out of the pandemic, there's going to be a war for talent. We all said, as we move out of the pandemic, there's going to be a recession and you know the, all the normal recessionary things are going to happen. And I think the reason is exactly the points that you made, Chris. Part of, what, part of it was that people had a chance to think about other ways of working. Part of it was they saved a bit of money because if you remember, you didn't spend anything in those two years. Um, actually, right now, the US and Europe is, is, is behaving slightly differently. Uh, the US are coming back to work faster than they are in Europe. Uh, and we're not quite sure why that is. Um, we think probably the savings rates in the US have been lower. So people are now having to go back to work, even though they don't feel like it. There's also the question of, that the long COVID, you know, I just saw some data yesterday from UK data to show 
that the number of people who are not registered, who are taking sick leave is much higher than it used to be. Um, so, you know, there's a whole set of reasons. We know there's two groups that haven't come back. One is the over 60s. And, and I find that really scary because the big aha for the book that I wrote, The 100 Year Life was, if you live to 100, you have to work into your 70s. And if people are leaving the, leaving the workforce in their early 60s, expecting to, to, to live until they're 100, that's, that's a saving you know, equation, which is very, very tricky. The other group who aren't coming back is mums with, with young kids. Um, so, so it's going to be very important to get people back to work. I do like, as speaking as both, both a psychologist and somebody who, who writes with an economist, we like full employment. It's, it's good for a country to have full employment. So we need to, and, and part of the reason I think I'd like to see work being a lot more flexible is I'd like everybody to feel they can work, you know, who, whatever their age and whatever their circumstances, because in general, I think it's good. Good work is good for people. You know, it gives them pride. It brings them out of their homes. It reduces the feeling of loneliness. Um, it, it can they can learn skills. They can meet friends. You know, I wrote a piece in the Financial Times last week about friend. You know, having a friend at home at work. This this marvelous Gallup data that shows the number one thing that uh, that predicts whether you stay in, in a company or not is. I have a best friend at work, you know, so there's lots of good reasons why people should go to work. And, and I think we, we as, as, as organizations and, and leaders should be building work in such a way that people feel that they can do it, whatever their age and whatever their circumstances. Well, I'm laughing as well. You just mentioned your best friend at work. And I, ironically enough, my closest friend at work literally lives half a mile up the road from me. On the other side of the main road that we're off of. So was, we just grab lunch here locally in Connecticut as opposed to going in the office and having to see each other. So I thought that was uh, an you, interesting did point. You, did you bubble with uh, did you did you bubble with your best friend when you had that bubble thing where you could only I don't know if you had that in the US. We had a thing. So my best friend at work actually also lives around the corner. And during COVID, she and I walked every single day because we were allowed in the UK to bubble with somebody, another family. So our families bubbled to we, we formed a bubble. And so we, we, got, we got very close. We had something similar, but our bubble was my son's baseball team and their families. <laughs> and so it was a, it was a bigger oh, bubble than two people. Oh, that, would, that wouldn't have done for UK law. No, no. We, had, we, we, had we didn't tell anybody. We had very small bubbles. I mentioned at the top of the show that you've written 10 books on business. Yeah. Are books to authors what children are to parents? <laughs> Is it well, hard I to have got, a favorite one? Well, I've got eight children as well, Chris, although they're not all mine. But my husband and I, between us, have eight children and 10 grandchildren. Um, so I've got a lot. I've got a lot of everything, a lot of books, a lot of. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some that were obviously completely useless. So I wrote one actually. Well, children or books? I, sorry, the one children that, or books? <laughs> oh, well, there's honestly really useless children. I, I can I can rank them for you in terms of general uselessness. <laughs> Um, but books, I could probably, I could probably rank them in terms of general uselessness as well. The one I think was the one, the one that I wrote one called the Democratic Enterprise. I got really interested in democracy and voting, and I still am. In fact, I, I was talking to someone only yesterday with about blockchain, and they said, "Oh yeah, we're doing all this voting," and I said, "Oh yeah, it's all coming back," but it was way. Way before its time, and it, you know, I think I, I, I like to say only my mother read it, but I think that's I don't think that's true. I don't think my mum, my mum read it either. Although sometimes, if I say that, I get people emailing me saying, "Linda, I read it," and I say, "Oh, good for you." Having said that, I've written I've written other books, The Hundred Year Life, which has sold almost a million copies, best selling book in Japan, outsold Fifty Shades of Grey in Japan, so. You know, it's uh, yeah, it's it's a funny old business writing. I, I actually really like doing it, but it's a funny old business. You end up talking to people like you, Chris, when I should be really having my first gin and tonic. <laughs> this <laughs> okay. is it is it is seven o'clock in the evening in in London. I is honestly, I promise you, it's this is not an early gin and tonic. There's no judging here. It's okay. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. So obviously, your ideas come from the business world. But exactly, how do you come up with specific ideas for your books? Well, you know, I am a psychologist, so 
it is business, but it's really lives. I mean, it's really lives that interest me. And because I'm really interested in work, actually, rather than business, uh, Chris, that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in how we work as we do, why we work as we do. It's the it's for most of us. I mean, think back to your days of getting up at four o'clock in the morning and coming back in the evening. That's the most that was what you did most of the time. So for me, I, I work from the individual out. I don't work from the organization in. I basically say, what's it like for Chris at Goldman? That's the question that I ask. What was it like for you at Goldman? And because I teach MBA students, again, that's what I, that's the question I ask, you know. So I have 120 people in my class, 45 nationalities. And I say to them, because they've all worked, what was work like? Tell me what it was like. Tell me what was a day in your life? And I find that sort of fascinating. And that's really what starts it all happening. And I got really interested in the future of work, the, the impact of demography, technology, social, social trends. And that's really what, what I've been writing about right the way through, which is to say, will work ever change? And I've said it has to change. And now in redesigning work, my last book, my, the, the, my last book I wrote, then the answer is it has to change. You know, it's got to change. So I'm not madly interested in business, but I'm very interested in work and I'm very interested in people. Well, it's amazing the lens you've been able to look at this through having a psychology and business background. And so that's just a completely different perspective. Yeah, it is. It is. It is, Chris. And it's a great perspective. And funnily enough, I did actually start thinking about writing a book today and, and it's going to be much more about people. I'm, I'm not even going to talk about work anymore. Put the pen away when you go to France for holiday. Exactly. No, no, no. That's the time when I do That's all my That's the time writing. when you relax and write. It, keeps, it means I don't have to spend all my time with the grandchildren. <laughs> and with a gin and tonic in hand, I hope. Yeah, no, not, not no gin and tonics <laughs> until I've written five pages, Chris. Come on. Linda Gradden, thanks so much for being with us today, all the way from London on a late evening. And sorry to interfere with your supper. Ah, no problem, Chris. Lovely, lovely to talk with you. Likewise, I appreciate your time. Linda Grant's books, including her latest book, Redesigning Work, How to Transform Your Organization and Make Hybrid Work for Everyone, are available through online and traditional booksellers here in the U.S. and elsewhere. Thank you to our audience for tuning in to this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek Public Figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.